right, beautiful singing. Well, welcome to Redvale Church. I've not met you. My name is Aaron, and I'm the preaching pastor here, and uh, glad you're with us on this uh, Mother's Day weekend. So if you have a Bible with you, if you'd open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. Then I'm going to read for us a passage I think many of you are familiar with. So 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. I'm going to read the entire chapter, all 13 verses. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles on the pews, and feel free to open up there. If you don't know where 1 Corinthians is, it's okay. It's just if you can kind of get to like maybe the last third or so of the Bible, you can kind of find it uh, in there. So 1 Corinthians 13. So let me read the sacred text, and then I'm going to pray, ask for God's blessing on this time, and then uh, we will uh, get to work. So this is what the scripture says. So if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, and have not loved, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now I see in a mirror, for now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to be together. And Lord, it's good to be under your word, which is true. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word by the power of the Spirit, that you use this time in real ways in our life to mold and shape and fashion us into the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned this last Sunday, so starting actually next Sunday, it's going to be a little bit extended time where I'm not going to be standing behind this pulpit to deliver the weekly sermon. Instead, there's going to be a few guys in the church who will be opening up God's word for us as we begin the study of the New Testament book of Philippians. And I think this sermon series is going to be good for us uh, on a number of fronts. So first, if I can speak personally here for a second, I think it's going to be good for me. So outside of a couple of sermons that I'll be giving at our campground, it's going to be good for me to get a little bit extended break from just some of the weight that can come with writing sermons. Uh, this time I think also will be good for me because it will allow me to get to a few other things that I might always have space to get to. And most importantly, I think this time will be good for me to, to personally sit under preaching, which is actually the thing I'm most looking forward to, to sit under the teaching of, of God's Word. So I'm sure this will be a good time for me, which is why I'm thankful to the elders and for you to giving me uh, this time. Second, I also think, hope, that this time will actually be good for the guys who are going to write and deliver the sermons to us, uh, some of which will actually be giving their first ever sermons. And I trust the entire experience that make up a sermon will be good for these guys. 
It'll be good for them to have to study and prep as they try to wrestle with the scriptures to see what the scriptures are saying. It'll be good for the guys then to have the process of trying to craft the sermon in ways that it communicates to our congregation what the text is saying and how it applies to our lives. It'll be good for the different preachers that have to go through the vulnerability that can sometimes come with delivering a sermon standing behind this pulpit. And each of these things are good because each of them are meant to drive the preacher to greater dependency upon the Lord, which we know is always good. Third, I also think this extended time that we have in the book of Philippians will be not just good for me, not just good for the guys who will be preaching, but I think even as a church as a whole, the sermon series is going to be good for us. And I think this is going to be good for us as a whole because I'm confident that each of these guys will do a good job of faithfully expositing God's word to us. And I think it's going to be good for us just to hear some sermons from different styles and some different personalities. And I think at times, digesting different preaching from different preachers can actually be very good for a church body. I think at times, variety can help break up some of the monotony that church life at times can bring with it. So, sometimes, uh, so this series, I think it will help us as a whole. Maybe to recapture some attention that uh, at times is hard for us to keep. So, so on multiple fronts, I think it's going to be a good thing for our church to do over the next uh, several weeks. So now, all that being said, because today is my last sermon behind the pulpit for a bit, I want to step away from our current sermon series in 1 Samuel that's going to pick up and finish up after we uh, conclude our sermon series on Philippians. And I wanted to give us a one-off sermon today from the text that I just read for you, which is a text that actually has been on my mind and heart. And this has been on my mind and heart for, I guess, a couple of reasons. First, this text actually is always on my mind and heart because this text communicates our call to love each other which not only is one of the most important things that we do as a church, and after all, our Lord Jesus even told us that others will recognize us by our love for each other, so is that important. But loving each other is also one of the hardest things that we might do as a church. It's, it's not always easy to love. Now, Scripture tells us a few times to not grow weary in doing good. And because at times the call to love is hard, I think this good thing of loving others is the thing that can actually leave us most weary. So because at times this is hard, because of how important it is, this passage actually is always on my heart. That's one reason. Second reason why I want to communicate this text to you this morning is actually in correlation to a staff meeting that we had from a couple weeks back, where somehow in the conversation we started to talk about one of the hardest, most painful seasons I personally had in church life, uh, which is before my wife and uh, Tia and I went to seminary, uh, where the church went through a, a really volatile, painful church split which on the day the church officially split, which is on a Sunday morning, uh, the police actually were called because there was such anger and division within the church body to the point that the people were yelling and screaming at each other like in the sanctuary Sunday morning. So after I told our staff about that awful experience where this once unified church painfully split apart, I just began to go back in my own head. You know, what, what went so wrong? And my conclusion at the center of the split was simply a lack of love for one another, where somewhere along the lines, the church family grew weary on doing the hard thing to love one another, so weary that they actually just stopped doing it altogether. After telling that story to the staff meeting, reliving come to that awful experience, I just found myself wanting to work through this passage with you today um, for my last sermon before I get a little bit of an extended break. So now before we work through the passage, let me give you a brief context for you. I was simply saying the church in Corinth, to whom Paul wrote this letter to, was a church that was struggling mightily on many different fronts, with a struggle to love one another being maybe their primary struggle. And because of their struggle to love one another, the church in Corinth was, was really being torn apart. 
let me just mention a few places where we see that. So in chapter 1, the church was struggling to love one another because they were too busy dividing themselves into different camps that was producing some infighting, where each camp convinced that they were better, more faithful, more spiritually mature than the other camps. So in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, we see that one camp would like talk all day long and gush over how they follow Paul, mentioned the author of the letter, how he was the best, and if anyone wanted to be a true Christian, they would flock to Paul and read his theology. But then there's another camp who would work all, or talk all day long and gush how they would follow over Apollos, who they thought was the best. In the New Testament, it seems like Apollos was like the first well-known preacher. So I wondered, like in this camp, if their argument was like, hey, if you really want to be properly fed, you're wasting your time listening to any other preacher other than Apollos. He's really the only one who knows how to preach. There's another camp that would talk all day long and gush about how they would follow Cephas, which is another name for uh, the Apostle Peter. So Peter was like the upfront leader in the early Christian church, which we see in the book of Acts. So I wonder if his leadership charisma was so strong that this camp in Corinth would like criticize anyone if they didn't follow Peter, if they followed anyone other than him. But then there was the most spiritual camp in Corinth who would play the trump card in any argument they had with any other camp, as they said they were just simply like following Christ. A, a divided church where each lived in their own little echo chamber, where they puffed up each other in their own camp, where they had little to no interaction with the other camps, it seems like, outside of maybe trying to tear the other camps down. And this dividing into camps, living in the echo chamber, this was such an issue in the church in Corinth. Paul even circled back in chapter 4 to confront this division a second time. But, but that's not the only place the church struggled to love one another. In chapter 6, the church struggled to love each other because they were too busy taking each other to court, placing lawsuits on one another, which is kind of an incredible thought to think. So rather than lovingly working through whatever struggle they had, it just seems like they're like pouring gasoline on the fire, making maybe small issues into huge issues, just to divide and fight over. Chapter 8, the church struggled to love each other because they're too busy putting stumbling blocks in front of one another, where it seems like those who claim to be like strong, mature in their faith, were like arrogantly seeking to put others down who had other um, weaker issues of conscience than they did, where those who claimed to be spiritually strong were counting themselves far more significant than the others. So rather than doing what the scripture tells us, counting others more significant than self, they clearly were counting themselves as the most significant. And there's more in chapter 11. The church struggled to love one another in Corinth, even when it came to taking of the Lord's Supper, which is a great meal that the local church is to take together to not only remember what Jesus did for us on the cross to provide forgiveness of sin, but as we take the Lord's Supper together, this is a great meal the church is to take together as a family to testify how that through Jesus Christ we have been given love and unity towards one another, how through his blood we have now become one body. By the way, this is why we take the Lord's Supper the way we do here. We take it up front so you can see each other. And so we actually want you to look around and see each other as you take this meal. It's a way for us to recognize not only that Jesus died for you, but he also died for the other people taking the meal as well. How through his blood we now have unity and love with each other. After the church in Corinth, even this meal of love and unity became a source of division. They start to abuse in such a way they're like puffing each other up in their pride that no doubt was driving them further and further apart. Finally, I mentioned chapter 12, which comes right on the heels of our text today. The church struggled to love each other even with their spiritual gifts which are gifts given by God to each believer, which the believers are to use in ways to build up the church in love. However, in Corinth, the spiritual gifts were just one more avenue for them to pridely, uh, pridefully divide over. And they started to like, use their gifts as a means of trying to boast in self, 
while blitting others who had gifts different than them that they deemed as being lesser gifts. So, so this church in Corinth, this is a church that was struggling in so many ways. And suddenly at the center of their struggle was a struggle to love one another. Which, by the way, all these struggles that Corinth had, these are the exact same struggles that we can fall, to, fall into as well. Okay. So I'll just a few quick housekeeping notes, and then we'll get back into the text. So I do know this is a famous text of scripture, one that many are familiar with. And this is a famous text because 1 Corinthians 13 is often read at weddings, which, which I do think is appropriate to have at weddings. Right? It's appropriate for husband and wife to love each other in ways that we see described in our text. However, that being said, as we work through this famous passage this morning, let's just be mindful to remember, the first context of this passage is not a wedding, but this is to a local church. This is for a local church to know how to best love each other. Which means for us, as we read through this passage, we do so in ways that, once again, like we're looking around, we're seeing the people in this room. Right? These are the people that God has providentially planted in our lives that you and I were called to love. So as we work through the passage, don't simply look up here at me, but look at each other. Look at each other out of a heart of love. Second, let me give you a little bit of structure that we're going to be using to work through this passage. So you see in verses 1 through 3, if you want to take your eyes there, that will be the first part of the structure of the text which exposes some false assumptions that we might make as a church or individuals that make a church in terms of like the strength or the maturity of our faith. As we get to these first three verses of the text, I wonder how these verses may be specifically related to different arguments, different camps we're making towards each other in Corinth on why they were right, why they were best, why they were the most mature in the church. That's the first part of the structure. Then verses 4 through 7 will be the second part of the structure, which famously gives the biblical definition of love. Uh, and we see, as we get to there, we'll see uh, love. There's some things that are present. We also see some things that are not present when love is, was, when love is there. And these are actually things that do prove the strength and maturity of our faith. And then finally, verses 8 through 13, the third part of the structure is we're going to finish off why, see, why we, uh, we can see why love is just so important for us to have. And that love will continue for all eternity, which in the context and in stark contrast to other things we might do in the church that in time might fight away, uh, fade away. That's also for housekeeping. And one last thing I'll let me mention for housekeeping. So I want to be upfront. I'm going to do my best to actually keep this as a simple sermon. It's just to focus on the call to love. So in the text, there actually there's a few things that are pretty hotly debated among Christians, particularly when it comes to like tongues, knowledge, words of prophecy, and how they relate to fading away when the perfect comes in verse 9. So now, now this is an important conversation and discussion for Christians to think through. However, for this time here, I just want to focus on the fourth of the text, which is the call to love. Rather than individuals of the text, it relates to the coming of the perfect. Now, the individual trees in the text are important, but to give a thorough treatment of that portion of the passage, I just don't have enough time. And so today I just want to keep at the forest level. And as I say that, I'm happy to connect with any of you who would like to talk and think through a little more deeply when it comes to tongues and words of prophecy and their passing away. Okay, so those are the housekeeping notes. So if you want to look back with me again at verse 1, which we see some false assumptions the church was having in terms of their faithfulness to Christ, their strength in their faith, their overall Christian maturity. What you see, starting in verse 1, it says they had such focus on external realities rather than issues of the heart. So verse 1, you see Paul attacked the false assumptions that the church was having, that they had a strong faith, simply because it seemed like they were resting in their ability of clever rhetorical skills. And they thought, you know what, because we could speak in such a way that we speak, we must be strong in the faith. But in our text, Paul wrote that even if he spoke in the tongues of men, the tongues of angels, right? a unique, powerful ability to communicate, to preach, to teach, that no doubt would draw a following, that capture people's attentions, that even if those skills were present, 
which are tempting for us to think that surely this must prove one's maturity, must prove that God's hand is on them. However, in the text, Paul wrote, if those skills are present, but if in his communication it was not coming out of a heart of love, he wrote that in truth, the rhetorical ability without love, love for God, love for others, it'd be nothing more than like a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. It would just be loud. It'd just be obnoxious noise. So, so not a strong faith, not a mature faith, but maybe at best like a weak, shallow faith. Verse 2, Paul went on to attack those who could maybe talk a big game, who could make some pretty confident assertions. As he wrote that if he had like all prophetic powers, if he could claim understanding of all things where we're headed, or if he could understand like all mysteries, if he claim to have all knowledge in every situation, even if he's able to praise great faith in God in ways that he could like trust God, that indeed God can move mountains, if those things were present, that once again sound good, look good, perhaps point to spiritual maturity, yet in the text, if love was not there, Paul wrote in reality, he was nothing. Those confident assertions that he could make were nothing but fool's gold, right? not strong, mature faith but at best, a weak faith. Verse 3, Paul then went on the attack on even, what, uh, on, on even doing things that appears deeply sacrificial. Sacrificial acts that I think we'd be tempted to think would prove the strength of one's faith. In the text, he said, if I give away all that I have, even if I deliver my body to be burned, which could there be a more sac- sacrificial act than this? To leave everything behind for the sake of Christ? In the text, Paul wrote, that even if he did all of those things, but he did not have love to guide those acts, he wrote, I gain nothing. Those great acts would be done in vain, to be a waste, right? Not a strong, mature faith, but at best, a weak faith. In these first few verses, it had to be sobering for the church in Corinth to hear. Maybe even sobering for us to hear. Where in a sense, we can check some really impressive boxes in church life. Like boxes that we actually should want to check. Yet, if we can't check the box of doing these things out of love, in the end, we have nothing. Friends, love must be present. Which is the second part of the text, which defines what love is. This love that must be present particularly if we can have a strong, growing, mature faith. Once again, as we go through this text of Scripture, please don't just look at me and the famous and familiar words here, but please do look around and see the people in this room. Like, see the people in our church family. And consider, are you and I, are we loving like this that we see in verses 4 through 7? Tied to that, how can we love each other better like we see in verses 4 through 7? Let's go through this section, as mentioned. Notice that Paul defines love both on the positive and what love is, as well as on the negative and what love is not. So verse 4, if you want to take your eyes there, on the positive, love, it's patient. Love, it's kind. That's what love is. It's patience. It's kindness, which is clearly something the church in Corinth was struggling to show show towards one another. It seems like this ancient church was divided all the ways they could divide because they were impatient with one another. They were not kind with one another. And because of that, they're tearing each other apart. Keep going in the text. On the negative, love, when it's there, when it's present, it does not envy 
Friends, that's not what love does. So when we love others, especially others in the church family, it doesn't allow us to look at others in the family who maybe have things that we might want but don't have. So then we become like envious of them because they have what we don't want. Rather, when we love, we start to look at others and we see whatever good thing that they have that, that we don't. And we're actually happy for them. Likewise, on the negative, love, it does not boast. Which is maybe on the opposite end of envy, where we're jealous of what others have that we don't. Boasting? What's that? That's bragging what we have or think we have that others don't. And we boast, but we think that we're just like somehow we're better. We used to attempt to, like, to build ourselves up, to pridefully love self rather than love others. Love, it doesn't boast. Keep going. Love, it's not acting in arrogance, which is clearly tied to boasting. If we arrogantly think we're better than others, or maybe for this church, arrogantly think that their camp was better than the other camp, or arrogantly think that their spiritual gift was better than someone else's spiritual gift. Like, that's arrogant. That's not love. When we love, we are not arrogant towards others. In the text, love, it's not something that's rude. When we love, we don't carry ourselves in such a way that we don't, like, care about others. We show no care towards them. Like, that's rude, whether it can be intentional or unintentional. Love is not rude. In the text, love is something that does not insist in its own way, which is tied to being rude. Where we only, like, maybe want to participate in something. Like, if we know we're going to get what we want, or we insist in it. Or we just, like, keep fighting over something until we get what we want. Right? When we do that, when we insist it has to go our way, that, that's not loving. Rather, when we love, we stop making it about us. We stop making it about our own way. We lay down our own desires for the best interest of others. That's what love is. People in the text. Love, when it's present. You know what's not present? Being irritable. Resentful. Which often goes hand in hand when we insist in our own way. Right? We don't get what we want, so we become irritable, resentful. We get snippy, grouchy. I mean, it's tough to be around. We keep people at a distance because how irritable we are. For six, love is something that does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Rather, love rejoices in the truth. Right? When we love, we're more concerned on what is right, what is true, regardless of how it might make us look. Like even if it maybe it makes like our camp or maybe our spiritual gift maybe not look as good, or maybe it looks some other camp or some other spiritual gift look good, it seemed to be a real issue in Corinth on different levels and different ways, seem to really value wrong, evil doing, perhaps even tied to that. Maybe they're rejoicing when a camp they're divided from reap consequences of sin. Maybe they, I don't even wonder if they're maybe like more happy for other camps to maybe fall than if the camps actually were able to walk in the truth. Verse 7, on the positive, love, when it's present, it bears all things. Not some things. Love bears all things. And we know this. There's plenty of things to bear in church life. On the positive, love believes all things. Not some things. 
But love bleeds all things. On the positive, love hopes all things. Not some things. But love hopes all things. On the positive, love endures all things. Not some things. Rather, love endures all things. The start of verse 8, on the positive, love, it never ends. Friends, that's what love is. It's not some type of weak, sappy, puppy love. But when we love, there's a real, full, strong commitment to the Lord and to each other to serve and care for each other in deep ways. For us this morning, as we think about the definition of love in verse seven, let me just give, or verses four through seven. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts. So this definition of love, listen, this is not a definition to be like read in theory, like it's just kind of like floating out there theoretically. This is what love is. But as we go through these verses, this is to be read in ways that's like put into practice, in reality. And for us, practically, it starts with loving people who make up Red Village Church with a commitment to love love and care for each other. Second, to go back to what I said earlier, to love like this, to love like we see in verse 4 through 7, that's hard. It's not easy to love like this, even at times with people in this room. Listen, we're not always easy to love. We know this. What's easy? It's easy to divide into camps. It's easy to puffer ourselves up with pride. It's easy to belittle others, others that we don't see eye to eye with. It's easy to act like superior to others who we might deem lesser when it comes to their gifts. What's easy? It's easy to go through the motions of church life, maybe even doing good things like the first three verses of our text, but doing so without love. What's easy? It's easy to be impatient. It's easy to be unkind. What's easy? It's easy to envy and boast. It's easy to be arrogant and rude. It's easy to insist in our own way. What's easy? It's easy to be irritable, resentful. It's easy, actually, to rejoice in wrongdoing. Those things are easy. To love, that's hard. Friends, that's something we can only do with the help of the Lord, which is something we're going back to at the end of this time. Before we get there, just the final section, verses 8 through 13. If you want to take your eyes there. Once again, verse 8 starts with this. Love, it never ends. That's why love is so important. It, it never ends. Even through all eternity, love is going to be present which in the text is contrast to things like prophecy, tongues, wor- uh, words of knowledge. Those, those are not eternal realities. So what we see in verses 9 and 10. The text says, For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Which here, this, I don't think this is Paul not saying like these temporal realities weren't important. Rather, he's just stressing they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is to love. All these other things one day will be gone. I said again, based on the context of this book, that seemed to be a real issue for the church in Corinth. He became himself so 
divided on temporary issues, puffing themselves up in temporary issues. They miss the bigger reality of love. Because of that, starting verse 11 of the text, Paul wrote a couple illustrations to push this point uh, further home to help the church in Corinth to see what matters, to see what spiritual maturity looks like. So illustration, Paul wrote, when I was a child, when he was young, immature, when he had living understandings, he said, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Which I think here, this is like Paul maybe getting a little bit of shot here at the church. Felt like they're acting very childish. Over the illustration, he goes on to say, but then he grew. And he matured into manhood. And he, he left his childish ways behind, which clearly was his desire for the church in Corinth. He became so mature that he was able to see what mattered. So once again, the call to love, which will never end, which will always be present. Verse 12, the second illustration to also prove his point. This time using a mirror. We wrote, in this present light, we see things about as clearly as looking through a dim mirror, where we can maybe kind of see, but not really. In the text, when Christ comes, when we see him face to face, Paul wrote, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known, that indeed, it's true. Love is what will reign eternally, supremely. When we see Jesus, that will be clear and obvious to us all. We will see and understand that his love for us is what triumphs. We will see and understand when he comes how true verse 13 is. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. Each of these are important each are to be present in the Christian life, in the life of the church family. right? Faith, hope, love, all important. But the greatest of these is love. It's most important to get that right, to continue to get that right, even when it's hard to do. To get the love of God found in Jesus Christ, to get that right, which is a love that compels us to love others which leads to the close that I have for us in this time. And just a few, few final thoughts before we start our sermon series next week in Philippians. So first, so you think of this passage, to love in ways that 1 Corinthians 13 defines it. Just notice, I think it almost requires there to be like difficult people in difficult situations. Like the difficulty actually provides the best opportunity to show that type of love. Now, I won't work through all verses 4 through 7 again, but let me just think of this thing through just the first few traits of those verses. So for love to be patient, right, does it not almost require that we need a person or a situation that be natural or easy for us to be impatient towards? Same thing with to have a love that's kind. Right? Do we almost not need someone who's like a, a person or situation that's like almost easy to be unkind towards? Same is true with a love that does not show envy. You almost need like a person or situation present where we'd be tempted to be envious. And I think we can actually do this all the way through verses 4 through 7. Like the difficult people, the difficult situations, th those are opportunities for us to love. Now we know the easy thing to do is get frustrated, get angry, irritable, resentful. But the spiritually mature thought when those things come our way this is to see that difficult situation as an opportunity to love for us to fulfill this text. Second, which relates to the first point. To love each other, as the text defines love, 
it, it does require for us to live in community. Or in the language of our church, it requires us to connect. Church, we can't love others if we're not around others. Specifically tied to the context of this passage, we can't love others if we're not connecting with others in ways we're actually using our gifts to serve and bless others in ways that we're seeking to build them up in love. Third, the love, the way that, that is divine for us in 1 Corinthians 13, this requires us not to grow weary in doing this good thing. Now, I mentioned this a few times during the sermon. Right? This is one of the hard things for us to do, to not grow weary in doing good, particularly when it comes to love. But for a moment, let me make this very specific to our church family. So as a church, we're about 12 and a half years old. And over those 12 and a half years, there's actually been a lot of things that we've gone through together. And really, if you've been in this church for any length of time, you know, like all other churches, it's not always easy. There's challenges that we have to go through. Challenges that can cause us to be weary. Specifically, weary to love. The start of our church, 12 and a half years ago, it was not even easy to even get things started. And for those who are present, like we asked you to wear a lot of hats where we really needed a lot from our members. So at the start, like even more so than today, our members, they had to wear many hats, making many sacrifices, serving in many areas, with no assurance that any of it would help get the church off the ground. In our 12 and a half years together, we actually bought this building, which can be a very difficult thing for churches to do. In fact, actually, the church split that I mentioned at the start of the sermon uh, that I talked about in the staff meeting, it actually was a building project that broke the church into the defined and divided camps. Where in the defined and divided camps, we quickly stopped loving one another. In our 12 and a half years together, we have seen and continue to see many people come and go from our church family. Some of which have gone to the foreign mission field. Some have moved out of Madison to different parts of the country. Some have decided to try a different church. We've seen some even walk away from the faith. And no matter the reason why people have come and gone over the last 12 and a half years, the coming and going is hard. It can leave us weary to keep saying goodbye as many times as we have. In fact, if I can speak personally for the bottom here, that's, that's been the hardest thing for me. All the goodbyes. In the 12 and a half years we've been in the church, we had to walk through all the challenges that came with COVID, which were not easy. As we know, that time in uh, society was divided into very distinct camps. Distinct camps that had a lot of disdain towards each other. And those divided societal camps was challenging even in church life. In fact, so challenging, it tore apart many churches who deeply struggled to love each other through the hard time. In the 12 and a half years since we've been to church, the society around us, I think Jay mentioned at the start, has rapidly changed. Where we have so many big issues in our society that have been such a challenge for us to try to work through and think through where society as a whole has like, made Christianity become more marginalized. That's been hard. Yet, even through all the hard things that I've mentioned we've gone through in the 12 and a half years, along with so many other hard things I did not mention, like, here we are. God and his grace has kept us together, in large part because as a church family, you have loved each other through it all even though it's not always been easy. So this morning, if I can, please allow me to encourage you 
to don't grow weary in doing this good thing. To continue to find ways to love each other. To continue to find ways to love each other, whatever the next hard thing might come our way. Red Village Church, do not grow weary in loving one another. Last thing. And this is actually the most important thing. So we consider 1 Corinthians 13. This requires God's love to be on us. We can't love in this way on our own. We need God's love on us. A love that's so strong that it can compel us, it can control us to ensure and love God and love others. And friends, this love of God, this is not a weak, sappy love. But this is a strong and full love. A love that is so strong that in God's incredible love for us, he sent Jesus Christ, who came to perfectly love his people, his people who have been written on his heart from all eternity, where in his love he has continued to love one another in all the ways described in our passage, where in his great and perfect love he even came to die for us, to take on the punishment of our sin, to save us from the judgment of hell. Friends, I can encourage you here. Jesus loves his people with the love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. And as he loves us, he promises he will never grow weary in his love for us. The love for his people whom he died for, it was a love that will never fade away. It will never end. It will always be perfect. So as I close this time, this text, let me invite you not just to look at the people in this room as you think through 1 Corinthians 13, but more importantly, look and continue to look to Jesus and to not grow weary to look to him. Look to him. Let these words wash over you and know that's how he loves his people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for our little church family here. God, please help us to love each other well. And uh, Lord, I pray that you might use our church family and our love for one another in ways that others might see you and believe and trust in you. I pray so in Jesus' name. Amen.